0: Welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the Editorial Director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show, the last one before Thanksgiving. We won't have a show next week. We're taking a week off, so it's going to be a good one. We have got a brilliant guest, very timely, but first of all, let me introduce my co-host, the ever-reliable and knowledgeable Frank Washkirk, who's uh, the uh, second-in-command here over at PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm
1: doing well. That's uh,
0: quite the build-up, Steve. Thanks for that. I know. Well, it's quite a week, you know. We've got liftoff on the show, and we've got liftoff with, uh, with our rocket this week. We've got Dina Costa with us, who's the SVP and CCO of Lockheed Martin. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition.
1: And liftoff of Artemis 1. We rise together, back to the moon and beyond.
0: Dean, welcome to the show. Pretty good week to have you on.
2: Yeah, Steve and Frank, it's almost like you timed it. Thank you very much for having us on. I love your podcast. I listen to it often. And what a great day to be on after Artemis 1 uh, launched, successfully launches off with the Lockheed Martin built Orion space capsule. So Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's almost like we planned this stuff, whereas as we know, it's just dumb luck.
2: But there you go. <laughs> See, that's our little secret. I will not share that with us. You timed it
0: this way. Yeah, better to be lucky than intelligent. That's been my motto (laughs) over the years. So we'll talk to Dean. Then we'll talk about Twitter. It's still in the news, and brands have got to be very aware, as Eli Lilly will tell you. We'll talk about, um, yeah, the Russian sanctions list. They've added some folks to it, including a bunch of PR people. This has been an interesting article where 12 ways journalists piss off PR people. I find that hard to believe that that would ever happen, but apparently it does. So we'll talk about that. The World Cup. We all set. Starts on Sunday. So. Uh, yeah, we will see whether that feast of football or soccer is uh, going to live up to uh, previous competitions. A bit different this year. We'll catch up with Cordon Kids because there's a Thanksgiving update and uh, it's blowing up social media. And then we've got a bit of news on PR Week as well, of, of course, various things, lists, events, launches, etc. But Dean, you used to work at NASA, actually. So not only are you uh, heavily involved at Lockheed Martin, but you've got a long heritage there. Talk us through the comms angles to this. Obviously, this was the third attempt to launch the rocket, and it's always touch and go, isn't it, with any launch like this? And it must have been a bit disappointing. The first one didn't happen when you had the vice president there. But talk us through what goes into something like this from a communications and PR point of view.
2: Yeah, as, as you might imagine, Steve and Frank, first of all, let me just say thank you for having me on. And uh, as I said, it's a, a great day to celebrate Artemis One. This is really the opportunity for NASA to have deep space exploration opportunities with both the rocket and with the Lockheed Martin built um, Orion spacecraft. And as you might imagine, a lot goes in, right? Um, NASA public affairs is front and center and companies and contractors like Lockheed Martin are there at launch uh, time and date, both planning leading up to launch and then the day of launch. This particular window opened up you know, midnight, late, almost middle of the night, night launches are by the way, the best launches to see uh, in person. Any launch is great, but especially a night launch. And I was down there for the first attempt, really hoping to to get that and see that. But uh, next year we're gonna add humans and I look forward to being uh, down there in person for, for that launch.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna shout out a friend of PR Week, Ian Twin, who's in the PR industry and he's been down for all three. He's a massive space fan rocket launch fan and he, he went down for all three and he was uh, I was pleased for him if nothing else that the third one actually happened because um, he uh, he was able to see see lift off it must be well exciting but and lots of planning but also nerve wracking you know there's so many things that can go wrong aren't there and such little details that can derail uh, a, a launch like that so what what things do you put in place right you've got to be prepared for all eventualities right
2: everything as you might imagine is a, is a good communicator and, and comms team NASA sets the bar when it comes to uh, planning and they have this playbook down incredibly well they work and 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 pull their contractors in to be a big part of that and as you might imagine there's there's waves of your communications approach and planning leading up to launch you're you're really touting kind of the, the countdown, if you will, getting closer to the mission, what exactly are you trying to accomplish, uh, want to be able to articulate it in a way that not, you know, more than just an engineer can understand, but as you as you might imagine, you also have to plan for the contingencies, and crisis communications is front and center of that when you think about all the things that can go wrong. I had, uh, as you mentioned, the opportunity of working for NASA and sitting in Launch control, the L- LCC, where you see those, you know, iconic movies where they do the countdowns and they go around, and everybody says, you know, go for launch. And and a lot of, there's a there's a seat at the table for public affairs to sit there and to understand what the issues are, the anomalies, what's happening, how do you articulate that to the public if you need to talk about that, uh, a, an issue that has popped up or or there's a delay, and how to explain that. So. All of those elements go into the planning and the articulation um, leading up to the launch. And then once you launch, if you have humans, especially, there is consistent and constant um, monitoring and telling of the story. And NASA has gotten so great at it, they make it look easy. But there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes, as you might imagine, getting ready, preparing for a launch. And the su- successful ones, those are the fun ones. But, you know, we really earn our stripes when there's a, an anomaly or an issue uh, during the mission.
0: Over the years, Dean, have you, what was the scariest or biggest crisis you had to deal with, you know, at your time in NASA and, and in terms of this particular part of what you do?
2: Yeah, so a, I came on board at NASA right after uh, the Space Shuttle Columbia accident. So yeah. um, it was constant crisis mode for my first two and a half years there, where we were dealing with a high-profile congressional investigation. Um, we were dealing with testing and understanding what happened. You had seven astronauts that lost their lives, so you're you're having to really grieve. And uh, be, you know, be empathetic about the entire situation with your families and with the uh, with the agency and with with the uh, the contractor community. And then you had to prepare for return to flight. Not only identify what was wrong, be able to put out a report and explain what happened, but be able to have the confidence to share what the root cause was and how you fix it to ensure we can put humans back on which is the whole lead up to return to flight so that was probably the biggest um you know uh, life lesson i had in a comms lesson on crisis communications that went on probably prepared me well for the pandemic for two years right because you you have yeah. to lead up to a, a return to a return to flight and really tell that story in a believable way being completely transparent with with, uh, all the folks that are overseeing and really watching closely. And it was a real good, great test uh, case on how to be authentic and how to share information even when it wasn't fully baked. And uh, for engineers, sometimes that's super hard to do, Um, but we convinced and helped people understand that that was the way to gain confidence is to show what we were learning, You know, it was okay to share that we were this was early, uh, early stages and preliminary. And we did that a lot and we gained a lot of credibility in how we communicated uh, throughout that. And to me, that was the the biggest takeaway for me and, and carries a lot of kind of my philosophy for crisis comms preparedness. And, and and our approach even at Lockheed Martin today so i i i worked with a lot of really great communicators during that time and earned a lot of a, a lot of stripes during that time that i carry still with me today
0: and just quickly what happens now because obviously this is just the start of a process isn't it it's the, the the rockets up there we've got then there are plans future plans putting people back on the moon you know where, where does the narrative go now for from the comms yeah. point of view
2: Good question, Steve. I think for this particular mission it really is testing all the systems right It's understanding you know uh, and that's part of the reason why you had a couple of uh, pauses and slips there was issues loading the rocket, making sure that we had the checkout and, and the things that you need to do to feel comfortable when you have humans on top of uh, a rocket like that. And so this mission is really testing all the systems on orbit And for us in particular for the Lockheed Martin built, uh, Orion space capsule, it is the heat shield. So reentry is going to be super important for us to understand um, some of the new technology that has been infused in the heat shields, understanding that coming back in for reentry to ensure that when we do have humans, that um, that we have a safe reentry and splashdown. I guess the, the last thing I would say, Steve, is one a really interesting component to the mission is what we're calling Callista, and it is uh, our our partnership with Amazon. And to do long space uh, missions and deep space uh, durations going back to the moon, but really going on to Mars and even further than that for humans, we're testing systems like uh, Amazon Alexa on orbit. So like, how can human astronauts be able to interact and have some tools that they have today on earth? And how do you have that kind of capability in deep space missions? So we're testing that on this mission as a part of that partnership with Amazon. And uh, that's something that's super exciting as well. And we'll be talking about that next uh, three weeks of the mission.
0: I guess space travel has suddenly become the sort of domain of billionaires, hasn't it? Over the past <laughs> recent years, and um, you know, I don't know how much Lockheed's involved in those ventures, but is it nice to get sort of NASA right back on, in in the center of this the sort of rocket launch, space travel, space, space? Well, it comes,
2: <laughs> yeah, it's full circle for me. You know, a being a space geek that I, I've always been, but you know, I was at NASA when we announced Lockheed Martin was going to win the Orion space capsule. So that was, you know, 15 plus years ago. And here we are now seeing it flies, come full circle. And I was also at NASA when we announced SpaceX and everybody was like, you know, Elon Musk getting in the space business. Really, is this really going to work? And boy, he's he's really proven uh, all the naysayers and, and doubters wrong and has become a, an integral part of NASA's strategy, both for resupply of the space station, on-orbit space station, and then ultimately, you know, in, in the future, of uh, for reusables and, and, and uh, other key technologies that are going to be needed for for space travel and exploration.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, it's it's been a very quiet year for you, hasn't it? Nothing much going on. You just had a, a rocket launch, and then clearly you're in the arms, defense, aerospace industry, so the... The um, invasion of Ukraine has been high on the agenda. You had President Biden visiting one of your facilities in Alabama in May. Just talk us through that and what the year has been like for Lockheed in respect to that uh, story and part of your business.
2: Yeah, it's really been a great year. And and in fact, you know, much like anybody you've had as a guest, uh, everybody's been dealing with the pandemic but um, we have been a, a company that never stopped, right? Our, our folks have continued to come to work. We went to virtual work for a lot, but our manufacturing folks still had to come into the facilities. We still had to build F-35s. We still had to build HIMARS and Javelin missiles that are, both are being front and center in Ukraine. And um, so I've been very proud not only to be associated and part of Lockheed Martin, but um, the real discriminator for us are the people that... Uh, that wear our badges and come to work every single day in support of our, of the warfighter and support of our U S government uh, and ally um, customers. And it, it has been, you know, an amazing year uh, for a lot of reasons, but you know it's rare that you get to have a, um, a V VIP guest like the POTUS and you get the president to come and and say hi and shake hands with your employees and say, thank you. And it was, Really amazing to have him there and his entire uh, group that came to visit us in Alabama. And really it's been a front and center explaining, you know, our products and uh, what we do and how we're doing. And in the meantime, we had a CEO transition with our new CEO two years ago, Jim Takelet, that unveiled uh, a new vision for the company, 21st century security, where we're really taking a platform centric Um, A company and infusing digital technology in in everything that we do so that we can ultimately help our customer have a portfolio that is all connected using data, data technology, understanding uh, things and being able to uh, uh, be able to make real time decisions using data faster and ultimately being unpredictable. And the whole goal is to really deter future conflict and never have to deal with conflict in the future. So, that is a very noble goal to be part of and part of that was how do you position the company in the future to be seen as that and that's what our whole rebranding effort or evolution of our brand around ahead of ready is conveying uh, and we rolled that out just in september and really pleased with that to help tell the story of lockheed martin
0: how do you how do you sort of manage that because you know at the end of the day you make weapons right and you make things that are are, are used if they are you know, deployed for mass destruction. So, how do you balance that? Um, it's not an easy communication space to be in, is it? In, in when you're when you're trying to talk about that, products that are essential for world peace in many ways, but also we've seen these scenes of devastation. You know that that those those products can rot. How do you balance that as a communicator?
2: Sure, and that's hard. But it, it, you know, I would say that we're more than just a munitions company, right? What no, of we course. do, yeah, yeah. What, you know in, in what you described is a part of our business but I would say technology development in the aerospace side right we 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 put a capsule on top of a rocket today that has nothing to do with munitions there's a lot of things that we do around technology missile defense that actually protects countries and their citizens so I think that I that that's the piece that we try to pivot to munitions is a piece of it but remember there's a lot of these, Missiles that are able to hit other missiles out of the the sky to help keep uh, keep countries and citizens safe, and so that's the area that we like to talk about or we focus on, and we talk about um, you know really more of the technology development. A lot of the things that we do or we've developed are first of their kind, and it's you know really hard stuff. So when you think about the mission to be an, a Lockheed Martin employee, it really is to help. Not only the United States, but our allies stay ahead of any peer threats, ahead of any technology development of uh, any potential future aggressors in a way that that deters future conflict. And that's the, the story and the messaging that we really focus on. And really, the technology behind that—the the engineers, the scientists, the the technologists—you know—we have one hundred and fourteen thousand employees globally, and um, sixty thousand of them are engineers, scientists, or technologists. So we have software engineers, we have these you know, some of the smartest people in the world working at Lockheed Martin and working on technology that will prevent war in the future, and that's the uh, the story that we really focus on from a communication standpoint.
0: Yeah, and I think at a time when sometimes you wonder whether World War Three has never been closer, I think it's comforting to know that there are, there are those deterrents there that are going to, like you say, stop conflict happening, because uh, nobody wants that, obviously, and uh, all our thoughts are with people in Ukraine who are having to deal with that and other parts of the world? So, yeah, good point, uh, Dean. We'll get your input on a bunch. Of this uh, we could talk to you for ages, actually. There's so much stuff to get to, but um, we'll get your input into some of the stories that are going on at the moment. Frank, Twitter's obviously been top of mind over the past few weeks, but the story moves on a pace, and uh, it's it's really around this whole blue tick, or you know authentication part, isn't it, this week, especially with what happened with Eli Lilly. Talk us through it.
1: It is, and it's one of those stories that it's it's hard to believe it's actually happening because uh, Twitter did have a, a useful verification system that pre- prevented things like this from happening on a mass scale before, and now it does not. Um, so I think everybody knows the um, what's happened to the blue tick. It's gone from being a real verification that a VIP or a notable organization or company uh, or a government official is real to something you can just pay $8 for. Uh, and that makes it very easy to for one entity to impersonate another, which we saw this week with Eli Lilly and the fake tweet that insulin was going to be free from now on. Now, Eli Lilly, of course, has just raised a lot of criticism over the years that um, insulin is too expensive for consumers. So a touchy subject for them. But this, this actually cost them a considerable amount of money off the market cap. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very serious thing. And I think especially if you look at the, you know, things you were just mentioning happening around the world, and we had the situation yesterday where there's those missiles hit inside Poland, which is a NATO country. I mean, there's the, a lot of these situations can be very dangerous and just, just rife with disinformation and can get out of hand in a hurry, you can think.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned Elon Musk, Dean, earlier, and you know this is seems to be what he's spending more of his time on at the moment, Twitter. But as we've done a bunch of articles and sort of suggested maybe brands and corporations need to take a bit of a pause from advertising on Twitter, but it's more than that, isn't it? If someone's going to start impersonating you, you've as a brand guardian, you've really got to be all over this, haven't you? It makes it very difficult to navigate.
2: Yes, and it's something we're watching closely. I will tell you, we also had a brand impersonator um, that posted something. I, I would say um, I know that there's the the narrative out there in the media that's trying to connect Eli Lilly and even Lockheed Martin to drops in stock price that day. I, I have a tough time believing and even talking to a lot of our financial experts and outside experts that a fake Twitter account uh, post Uh, correlation to a a stock market drop is, is, even if it was a real post, there's a real tough correlation to be there. In our particular case, we were down that day, we were up the previous three weeks. And um, that particular day, the entire industry was down. So and nobody else had impersonation. So it's hard to make that correlation. And I would, I would venture to say Eli Lilly would probably say the same thing when it comes to that particular case. Now that doesn't dismiss that this is a problem. And we are wa- really watching closely to see what protocols are put in place, measures in place to ensure that this doesn't happen. And we we, we aren't a big user of Twitter. We use it as one of the ways that we monitor the external environment, um, like many. But being a B2G company, more business to government, we're not the same, you know, we're not trying to influence Ah, uh, general public as as a, as a consumer. So, you know, for us, it was easy to pull back to say, okay, let's watch this a little closely, a little more closely, and see what happens. And it sounds like there's going to be you know more um, more protocols put in place. At least that was the tweet that Elon put out last night. So we'll see what happens there, and uh, we'll we'll, we'll uh, continue to assess all the channels. And uh, do what's best and maximize uh, in telling the Lockheed Martin story.
0: Yeah, Elon's putting out a lot of tweets at the moment, isn't he? And this could probably do with maybe uh, reining that back in. But anyway, I'm not. I'm not going to tell what Elon Musk what to do. Let
1: me just add something to that too. I think the really concerning thing about it to me uh, was was that. Eli Lilly's representatives tried to get in touch with people, people from Twitter, it seems like, for a prolonged period of time and just couldn't get anybody on the phone to talk about mm-hmm. it because they'd all been fired. fired or laid off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, So it doesn't give me a lot of confidence that they can. And that's a fair point, Frank. I do say that.
2: Now, I will say we have a really strong relationship with the Twitter client um, group, which, you know, the folks that are still left. And, we, you know, when we saw – we almost – we identified – the the fake impersonated account almost instantaneously and within two hours it was down so we really worked well with them so i have to give them credit how quickly they moved but but i've heard a lot of those stories as well frank and i think that is part of what protocols that need to get put back in place for brands like ours to feel confident to to be part of uh, twitter moving forward
0: yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I guess it's about relationships as well and having those relationships where you can get in touch with someone quickly and keeping them keeping them up to date. So uh, good for you for getting that uh, done and, and changed. And next story, Frank, is about uh, the Russia sanctions list, which um, it emerged that a bunch of people had been added to that, including a, some very high profile people in the PR sector. Talk us through it.
1: Definitely, some people our readers know, and that's Edelman CEO Richard Edelman, APCO Worldwide's founder Marjorie Krauss, Stephen Krubin from SKDk, Neil Wolin from from Brunswick Group, Corey Bliss from Plus Communications, and the White House Press Secretary Karine Jean Pierre. Um, These the sanctions lists are getting extensive. Clearly, as you know, both the Western countries and um, and Russia, you know, add more people to them for you know various things they see as offenses. So Russia on Friday said it banned entry to 200 U.S. citizens. It had already barred more than 1,000 U.S. citizens from entering the country since it started the war in Ukraine in February. Richard Edelman got back to us about it, said he considers it a big, uh, a huge badge of honor, and said he is proud of our work in helping get clients out of russia which he thinks is a great example of yeah that was a good
0: line uh badge of honor um dean i did notice that the i think that one of the some of the comms team at raytheon raytheon was were on that sanction list and you've got a big jv with them on high uh, rocket systems have you are you on the list do you know or is anyone from uh, lockheed martin on there no, there's several people
2: from Lockheed Martin, including our CEO, COO, and the head of our space business. So, no, I don't know if I'm on the list yet, um, but that list seems to keep growing. And um, I think, yes, and we have that j- joint venture with uh, Raytheon when it comes to Javelin missiles, which are being used in theater right now by the Ukrainians. Yep.
1: What does it mean in practical terms for for your CEO to be on the list? Does it mean anything? Does it mean anything to uh, to them at all? Or well,
2: I mean, uh, I think it would mean something if you d- had business or did business in uh, Russia. You know, obviously for us, we haven't, we don't do any business with the country. I think it probably will matter more for other industries, and I think that's part of what they're starting to lay. Uh, the groundwork for is to start uh, using that as a threat to potentially add industries that do have or have had ways to to work with the Russians. So, I, I mean, as we're seeing throughout this conflict, many companies have already pulled away and pulled out with any business uh, dealings with, uh, with the Russians. But, uh, you know, it's hard to say that there's uh, a- any sort of consequence for being on this list.
0: Yeah um it's uh, interesting certainly and uh, yeah nobody's got I when we're going to talk about the World Cup in a, in a minute. Uh, four years ago, I was in Russia for the World Cup, and I'm, I'm not expecting to visit that country anytime soon, which is a great shame because it's an amazing country. But um, I'm glad I went then and and saw saw what was uh, was on offer. It's, a, it's it's a great shame for sure. We did a story the other week. Um, Diana Bradley wrote a piece about 12 ways that PR people annoy journalists and um it got a lot of attention and out of fairness we thought well okay uh, let's let's flip the uh agenda and uh we did a, a 12 ways journalists annoy pr people it's shocking to think that journalists could have ever annoy a pr person but apparently <laughs> it, happened. it happens and we'll get dean's input on that in a minute but frank talk us through uh, some of the ways that we annoy our friends in the industry
1: well, I would just point out that uh, in her column, Diana Bradley listed 18 reasons. Oh, 18 sorry. It was more than 12. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm not saying that, that our side has more of an argument than their side does, but just throwing that out there. Uh, so uh, it's really – it's actually – this is a pretty good bite-sized, you know, straight-to-the-point discussion that's happening here. Um, and I, I think this is um, – I I think Diana brought up some terrific points. I mean, you know, it, it drives people crazy when you're pitched a story and told it's under embargo. But it's already out there on social media, for instance, you know, uh, what she called breaking your own embargo, um, or you know, pitching a story and then having nobody free for two or three weeks. You know, these are these are pretty basic things that I think most reporters would agree with. Uh, and, and Ian uh, Ian Bailey from Curate um, and an agency world veteran as well makes some uh, some good points as well in terms of um, you know breaking agreements if you if you agreed a topic was um, completely off the table and then bringing it up or then you know ghosting interviews that are set up with VIPs, uh, and as he put a uh, keyword here, artificially urgent requests and deadlines, particularly on a Friday before a holiday weekend, which I would point out is something that drives editors crazy as well, because we don't love when reporters file things at the absolute end of the day before a holiday weekend when they don't have to. So. Uh, that's one we can all agree on. Yeah, and- not that any of our folks here would do that. No,
0: and uh, and you would right. never see a communications department try and bury a bad news story on uh, late in the day, just before <laughs> a holiday, would you? That just would never happen. Yeah, so for sure. <laughs>
1: I was just going to say the word artificially doing a lot of carrying a lot of weight.
0: I, he's, uh, he's I always tell that, my so. reports to uh, only ask about the things that were agreed that we wouldn't talk about at the end of the interview so that you've already got your material. But anyway, sorry, I'm letting uh, you into a, a trade secret there. Dean, <laughs> uh, what are the things that annoy you and your team about journalists? Come on, it's your chance to really dish.
2: <laughs> hey, I, I like their list. I thought they actually had a pretty good list. Um, I, I think some of the same ones that you said, I think for me, it is, you know, hair on fire. Um, we have to go do this. Or I need somebody now. And then you you work to either get the quote or you give, get them, some you know, a subject matter expert. And then the story doesn't show up for five days, right? And it's like, really? Like, you, you this was pressing and you had to have it. So I think that's probably number one of the top ones for me. And I think- I would uh, say that's of,
0: usually the editor's fault. Especially the news editor, but hey, you know, the poor old reporter gets it in the neck. But yeah, it's fair. It's
2: yeah, fair. Uh, you're right. That, that's probably one. I, I think for me, I got to say, and I, this may be as a former journalist, this may be uh, heresy, but um, I uh, they don't annoy me that much because um, I think as as a whole, they are less relevant than they were five years ago. So, you know, having to deal with reporters to get your story and narrative out isn't as important as it was even just a few years ago, because there's so many different ways to go and um, strategically influence an audience that doesn't require a mass, you know, connection with a reporter. Now, it's still, still important, don't get me wrong, but it's not as important or as it's not the number one thing anymore like it used to be
0: that's sad to hear but you're right you know you are right and uh, but it's a it's a great shame it's about uh, the diminution of the media as a as an influencer and as a trusted sort of vehicle it is mm-hmm. sad. I'm going to add one in because as an editor this one is when people pitch you op-eds and ideas and when you check and this is to a specialist publication that writes about PR that you know they should all be subscribed to and engaging with and um they want their coverage in your outlet and then you check and you find out that they're not subscribed. so they're not even going to be able to read it when it gets covered that and I do check by the way, for anyone out there pitching. so and I get dozens of these every day and uh, Frank gets hundreds. he doesn't have time to do this, but I, I'm just a irascible old man so I do do it occasionally and it really you know just a, just a hint you're going to get a better um, hearing if you do actually engage with, the brand and you have relationships and you do actually read our product and you can only read our product if you pay for it. So just a little tip out there and sorry to be and by the way, I know this goes both ways and that's why we ran it. We, that's why we ran the follow up piece because I'm aware it's a it's a two way relationship and you know, we 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 wouldn't neither side would exist. Uh, without the other although as Dean says uh, there is less ne- need for the media as there used to be which is sad let's talk about the World Cup 2022 it's a really odd one this year because it's happening in winter especially in America because all of the main American sports are, are in full swing at the moment so it's competing a lot more than it would if it was at its normal time in the summer so Frank we did a piece about the best brand spots but it's it's been a tricky one for brands hasn't it because do you really want to be associated with this uh controversial world cup in qatar which has a questionable human rights record and then we've got a, a brand like budweiser a traditionally a big supporter of the world cup but uh it's going to a country where you know alcohol is frowned upon and they're trying to bury the fact that it's even available so talk us through what this is showing
1: it's complicated stuff and a lot of uh a lot of star players are here too which um i'm not gonna lie it takes a little bit of the shine off the world cup i think um asked a lot of people uh you know friends peers you know people i watch sports with things like that and i i have to say i don't know anybody that's boycotting i don't know anybody that's saying i'm i'm absolutely not going to watch it though i i think a lot of people are in agreement that this is not the country that they would like to see the world cup take place in and um you know certainly the circumstances around you know migrant workers dying building the stadiums is not what you want so uh i think a lot of people are going to watch and i think the thanksgiving break games for the u.s are going to be especially well watched and when people have time off before the holidays i think it's going to be uh yeah not prime time viewing but the next best thing uh, so I, I i think we'll do good numbers here especially since the u.s did not make the 2018. Uh, World Cup. Um, I I think especially the Friday after Thanksgiving game between the US and England will be especially well watched. I think that the brand activations around this, especially uh, by those partner brands, whether that's Adidas or other companies, are kind of what you would expect, you know, big stars, uh, you know, whether that's um, Ted Lasso or the actor that portrays uh, Ted Lasso or, you know, Pepsi always tends to get as many uh, star players into the ad as they can fit in 30 seconds. So did Adidas. Um, it, you know, I, I think they're what they, you expect. They're not focusing on Qatar. They're not focusing on the country, and, and there does seem to be an effort not to mention Qatar as much as possible. So um, those are what you expect. And you know, last week we wrote about BrewDog, which is a UK-based yeah. brewer that has um, some locations in the US, and they did a very anti-Qatar uh, World Cup campaign, uh, complete with donations to human rights groups. And people accuse them of being hypocritical because their locations are still showing the games. So like I said, I don't think you're going to see anybody boycott. Uh, entirely, uh, but there is bound to be, given the human rights record, there is bound to be some noise around it and some noise during the games and maybe even a protest or two there.
0: Yeah, um, Dean, is this even on your agenda? I'm speaking to a lot of people in America. It's it, it doesn't seem to be on the agenda as much as maybe prior World Cups.
2: Yeah, I, I think Frank's take is spot on. I mean, I think it's going to be super hard when you think about everything that is happening in the sports world. This is prime time when you think about NFL, NBA, you know, baseball just ended. So, but I, I do think there'll be anytime there's a, a U.S. games, particularly the match with uh, with England, that, that, that there is some opportunities. For us, I mean, it's a non, you know, it, it's it, it's not an area that we are participating in in any way, shape, or form uh, from a brand um, perspective or, or even sponsorship. So we'll, we'll be watching from home, uh, and you will not see the Lockheed Martin star anywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been to the last two World Cups. so I made a decision not to go to this one. I don't want to go to Qatar. And when I saw the fan village, the images of that fan village with 12,000 people getting uh, squeezed into what looked like shipping containers and there's going to be 32 different countries' fans in this space out in the desert, I was like, my God, thank God I'm not going. And <laughs> it's just got potential for disaster written all over it. So, uh, yeah, who's going to win it, Frank? That's the big question uh wow uh argentina okay not the u.s then
1: well, no, I'm I'm not optimistic the U.S. gets out of the group stages. Yeah, yeah. Being Very brutally honest with you. So, um, I'm I'm uh, going to go with a bit of a long shot in Argentina. I, it seems like Come Brazil on. has become the odds-on favorite as the as we lead up to it, right?
0: Yeah, I don't think Argentina's a long shot. I think them and uh, Argentina and Brazil would be the two favorites from my point of view. Obviously, I will, like every England fan, be hoping that we finally break our 60-year duck of uh, failing miserably in the world cup but i don't have massive hopes um although the whole nation will quickly get uh, go overboard if we win a couple of games but yeah like you said the the thanksgiving uh, black friday game with with america will be big and the first games against iran on monday at 8 a.m eastern time and i am confess i am taking the day off to watch that and the US versus Wales. But there, then we shall see. Once the football gets going, hopefully we'll concentrate on that rather than all this stuff around it. Just quickly to finish up, Frank, and uh, on the Thanksgiving tip, let's catch up with Corn Kid.
1: I really like
0: cold. Yes. How could we not catch exactly. up with Corn Kid? We've done a enough corn kid coverage.
1: Uh it's amazing how much of an impact this young kid who, as your, as the name might suggest, just loves corn. <laughs> his name's Tariq, his actual name is Tariq. Um but this is this is interesting because this is a Reynolds rap. They have come up with a recipe called it's corn turkey, corn exclamation point turkey. Uh, it involves crusting a turkey with a cornmeal topping, serving it with corn cereal and plenty of buttered corn on the cob. It feels like it's too much butter for me personally, uh, but it's it's intriguing. Um, and uh, this is interesting, too, because it doesn't look like there's any direct association between the brand and the corn kid himself. It just seems to be inspired by corn kid. Uh, who has worked with brands, including Chipotle, uh, Mr. Beast Burger, and the state of South Dakota.
0: Well, Frank, you were not in the office today and you missed works giving. We just had a turkey and cranberry sandwiches with mashed potato and gravy. So you missed out there, for my friend. So, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's turkey fun. is not what you what you want to be serving if you want people to be productive. That's true. Everyone's <laughs> half
0: asleep, to so be honest. That's, that's a really good point. It was commented <laughs> upon by the by the higher ups, actually. Why is it so quiet? <laughs> here <laughs> um a couple of pr week things and um, we've named melissa Scottegaard from signa as the chair of our healthcare awards so great to have melissa on board and um That's uh, the Health Influencer 30 was launched last week and the awards and conference will be in uh, early May next year in New York City. And uh, we've launched the call for entries to the Dashboard 25 list. So if you're in the comms tech space, make sure you get your entry into that. You've got a month to do that. Our salary survey is out there. So... Make sure you and all your team is filling that out. And we have our Hall of Fame event on the 5th of December in, in New York City. It's going to be fantastic that night. If you can come along and just celebrate PR, I really recommend you do so. Brilliant lineup of honorees this year. But uh, that's all we've got time for. Dean, thanks so much for joining us. at such a busy time. Really enjoyed chatting and good luck with all the space launches and the sort of developing that narrative it's great to see it again out there
2: thanks steve appreciate it and great talking with you and frank
0: yeah thank you frank and we'll see you next time on the pr week